I've been a part of organizations that the development director did not see themselves as a data person. Um, that wasn't their quote unquote strength. Uh, and I think that that's a real danger when you're expected to lead a team um, that has some real significant goals to keep the organization either afloat or moving forward. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by Justin Ellis. Justin is the VP of Development and oversees fundraising and relationship development at Thompson. And he is no newbie to fundraising. He's been around for a long time and has worked at many organizations that are established community service nonprofits in Boston and in Charlotte. And what's great about this is we get to dive in with someone that's in the weeds, in the chair, and really understand how you can move your fundraising from transactional to transformational and move your asks from just expressing a need to inviting people to invest in change. Justin is a wealth of knowledge and we dive into this conversation quickly. So get ready and let's dive into the episode. Justin, you work in fund development alongside um, a nonprofit organization. And the thing that I love talking to operators about is not necessarily always just jumping in and saying, how are you running fundraising? But even how you got into this, like most people don't wake up and say, you know, I want to raise money or I want to engage donors in doing good business. So I'm always curious, like, how did you get to where you are today, Justin? Absolutely. No. Yeah. So I, I actually didn't really know that fundraising was something you could base a career on when I was in school. Uh, I, I always was comfortable around people. I uh, always really enjoyed the opportunity to engage in conversation, especially with people I don't know. Uh, I don't think I have an introverted burn, bone in my body. Uh, but I didn't really know it was a thing. I started in college admissions after I graduated uh, and had a tendency to work with a lot of the families coming from different parts of the country that uh, were going to be full-pay students and full-pay families. And as many people know, um, first first program to get in touch with those families when a, when a kid starts at college is, is development. Uh, and I kind of fell into, in the back end, of realizing that uh, I could talk to people about supporting an organization I believed in um, and ask for money and that could be my job. And I really couldn't believe it at first. I, I thought someone was joking. And, uh, but I, I felt, kind of fell into it that way, started working in development uh, in higher education. Um, and kind of the rest is history. I've worked with a number of different nonprofits in a few different states, uh, originally from up north uh, in from Boston area, uh, and then moved down to North Carolina, the organization I work at now. Um, I've steadily been moving my way up through annual fund, major gifts, um, to working totally with a, a development team for an organization. It's so interesting to hear like the different paths. And I love how you said, like, I didn't even realize fundraising was a job. I think the whole like elementary school, like, uh, activity where we say like, what do you want to be when you grow up is a completely flawed, misunderstood activity. Cause it's like, what scope of reference do you have as far as like the mass amount of jobs that you can actually, <laughs> you know, dive into It's so much broader than maybe we really had. And I know my path was relatively similar. You know, I knew I wanted to do the task of what I wanted to do the job of the person that gets people to wait in line at a, at a store 
at four in the morning in the cold. Like I was like, if there's a job that like they're designing something in a way that like gets people to wait outside of a store at 4 a.m. in the morning to buy some sort of like widget or product, like product, like I want to do that and whatever that is, but not to sell more widgets, but to like hopefully make the world better. But I had no idea what that actually meant. You know, I was just like, wow, like if we can get people to do this, why can't we get people to like invest in children or invest in impoverished communities around the world? Like, why can't we use that same skill set? So it's interesting how that's now evolved to me working in, you know, a high level leader marketing role at a nonprofit tech company to help really enable organizations to engage their donors in a more effective way. So those paths are always really interesting. Yeah, so you mentioned obviously you're currently with Thompson, um, which uh, actually let's let's dive into that. If you don't mind, can you give some background on the organization that you currently work with, and then even how um, how the organization's uh, fundraising structure is? Because a lot of organizations are different, kind of the mix of funding. So I want to kind of reveal that, and then I want to get into the weeds a little bit with you as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I discovered Thompson Child and Family Focus when I, uh, my wife and I were looking to move down here. Um, Thompson is actually one of the uh, oldest and most established children and family serving organizations uh, in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area of North Carolina. Uh, so the organization itself uh, is almost 134 years old. Uh, they started as an orphanage through the Episcopal Church uh, and have evolved into um, a full host of continuum services addressing pretty much every need that a child and a family may experience when it pertains to trauma. Um, so we have a whole host of programs that operate along the scale of um, intensity and acuity and, and you know, whether that's uh, basic therapy or whether it's uh, all the way up to what we call psychiatric residential tra- uh, treatment facility where we uh, host and, and students live on our campuses. So the organization has evolved, but always with the mindset and the mission uh, of standing in the gap for children and families in our communities um, that do not have access to the services that they need to kind of rewrite their life narrative. Um, So we are a little bit of a unique organization in how we approach our revenue streams, different certainly from anything I've worked for in the past. Uh, We have a a fairly robust fundraising um, mission uh, with a fairly small and lean team. Uh, So we have uh, an individual that works with annual fund, uh, mid-level donors, major donors, and grants. Um, And each one of those people really kind of stay in their specialized lanes. um, And we all work together to bring in our fundraising goals. Uh, But really, every one of our 21 programs outside of two of them have their own integrated revenue streams built in. Uh, so we do a lot of work within the Medicaid, Medicare community. Um, we Most of our programs have some level of a billable um, part to them. Uh, so it actually is a, a really freeing opportunity as a development leader to be able to look at and talk about how we do fundraising. Every initiative that we build at Thompson is designed to talk about investment, outcomes and returns. Um, So when we approach a donor or a corporate client uh, or a foundation, we're really looking to jump on the back of a program that with some startup funding or with some continued donor investment, 
we can grow that program to fit the need of the community, which unfortunately uh, is ever growing when you're talking about mental health, uh, trauma, uh, anxiety, things of that nature. And I think what stood out to me when I was introduced to you, Justin, was that specific model and how you all approach that. And so I would love for you to almost dive deeper into that, into into how like you then package that in a way that gets those initial funders. Because I, I think in some ways it's a it's a this idea of being able to present a more sustainable opportunity for donors, especially major donors, to invest in is like we want that, but I think sometimes it's hard to get out of like the regular cycles of just asking people for a certain gift amount and moving beyond that and moving into that like investment ROI conversation with their donors. So I I guess reveal anything that is unique to that for you all and how you approach it, but then kind of recommendations you might have for other fundraising leaders on how they might transition or infuse that thinking into their uh, suggested asks to, 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 investors really their their donors absolutely and i mean no i'll say we're 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 three years into doing this um and i'll tell you it doesn't it doesn't get easier on the ask side or on the donor side it's kind of a, a re-education for the entire process um thompson as an organization pulling back you know the covers a little bit while we have a, a tremendous historical story um it was an organization that was uh, suffering to floundering a few years ago i'm going to be very very transparent about that it's very difficult sometimes to not build yourself a very significant bubble um, in this industry where you are just kind of talking into an echo chamber you're saying things and talking about programs and and words that no one in the outside community really understands um, and you're finding yourself constantly swimming against the flow of trying to just generate enough income to keep the lights on. Um, and so we were uh, really privileged enough to have a leadership team come in a few years ago that said, hey, we need to really change the dynamic of what we do here. And we need to address both the immediate needs of the community, um, but also do it in a way that fits a, a sustainable model for an organization like a business would. Uh, and so the idea of doing things that may lose an immense amount of money when you don't have that money is not a good business model. Uh, And so we did some really significant altering under the hood to our programs. Um, We, uh, we reduced our employee size by about 15% to start. Um, We rewrote some of the program models, created some new contracts for some. And then on the fundraising side, really started addressing some donors that had been long-term supporters and asking them first and foremost, why did you give to Thompson in the past? And what would you give to moving forward? Um, it, was, it was really enlightening to learn those conversations, to learn those answers. Um, and what we've done since then is every program and every endeavor we start at Thompson, we look at it in a way that says, what need or problem will it address in the community? What is our definition of solving that problem? And what is the investment needed and the return on that investment? So when we approach a donor, be it, let's, let's say an individual, uh, we're able to lay out real data and outcomes of what it is we're trying to accomplish and what their investment would do in that process. Um, we, we strive very hard to put our, we call them Thompson Triumphs. Um, to put them in actual numeric form. So rather than just saying you'll help a child, um, we do a lot of work in saying there are 
2,200 children in the Mecklenburg County that fall under the poverty line and have more than three traumatic incidents before they reach the age of five. Here are two programs that have documented outcomes that will really work on moving the needle in that sphere. And if you invest at this level, you're able to help us get that much closer. Once your investment is in, here's how the program will work to become more sustainable so that we don't need to go back to you and ask for that same gift in two years. Um, Is that possible with everything? No, but when you take that perspective, you start to see where there are a lot of inefficiencies and where you can trim those to put more focus and time on the programs and the initiatives that can really bring return to a community. Um, And like I said, we're three years in and we're starting to get some real movement. We're starting to get some real momentum on it, um, but it's, it's a constant conversation to have internally and externally to create that. Absolutely. And I can imagine that, like you said, it impacts so much. And I, what I, what I find in, um, encouraging by this model is the integration between programs and fundraising and how there's like this alignment that's pretty instilled, which one thing that we see a lot with organizations that struggle to maybe get the funding that they need is that there's too much of a disjointed approach to fundraising and programs. And what I like about this approach is this joinedness where you're inviting people to be basically a part of instead of just give to. And I think that's a a growing trend, not just amongst major donors, but everyday donors that are saying, I want to be a part of not merely give to, I'm not a transactional donor. I'm, you know, a transformational donor. And so I appreciate this example um, for those that are uh, looking to, to bridge that gap in their own organizations. Any recommendations for those listening that are like, great, Justin, but our organization's different. How can they, how, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's a typical <laughs> response. That's how I would yes, think yeah. <laughs> if I was listening to some like, Oh yeah. Good yeah, job, Justin. You, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love how you said that because, because the, the, take that same approach of um, not transactional, but transformational and then turn around and look in the mirror um, and not just a development leader, but an executive team. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, I'm sure not everybody listening is at the executive level, but what I would say is, is, the, the leadership defines the momentum that we've had here at Thompson. So while I am responsible for running the development team, my chief operating officer, my chief of programs, my CEO, every single one of them has the lens of uh, data and outcome and return investment when it comes to fundraising and programs in their own sphere. Mm. So it's not just, and, and, and I can tell you what, what it used to be was that development almost literally at Thompson sat in a bubble, three offices in the top floor of our administration building all the way in the far right. And I'm, I have seen that a thousand times. No one really knows what we do. No one really knows where we are because we're never in the office. Um, and, and, you know, you just kind of come and go. What we needed to change was that the, the culture of fundraising and philanthropy at Thompson, at Thompson needed to kind of infect the rest of the executive staff. Um, and so when you start to see that happen, when your chief of programs is looking at his budget and looking at his um, kind of what they're aiming to do and seeing where there can be the best return and talking to funders or talking to individuals in their network, the same way that you're talking about it to your donors, 
there starts to be this continuity uh, amongst an executive team where you start to create a real culture of philanthropy rather than just being a one-off program in an organization. And you, you don't need to have external revenue sources to do that. Um, I do think you need to have the right leaders, and that's a conversation for another time. Um, but I do think that if you get it, there's an opportunity for you to teach uh, and, and even you know, for someone that's not running a department, but wherever you are, start to try to infect that culture of philanthropy throughout your own team and throughout the organization, and you'll see things start to shift. Uh, my other advice, and this, this is uh, more directly for a development team, is that things start to go better when you ask more. Um, I, I had a great mentor when I first started in this, in this field, and he said, if you are not asking a donor uh, to enough times to get four no's before you get a yes, you're not doing your job right. Most of what we've learned has come directly from the no's that we get from our donors. So we have an idea, right? We think this is going to work. Just because we think it's going to work doesn't mean it's going to work. And it's certainly not perfected in the language or in the culture of the individuals that are going to give the money. Um, so we have dramatically, and I, I mean dramatically, increased the amount of asks that we make from an individual level to a mass mailing level to a, a corporate level to a major gift level. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we look at over the last three months, particularly look at what's happened you know, with everything with COVID related. At one point, no, we were making an ask every other day to our annual fund donor base. Um, we were it, you know, it reporting on the needs of the community. We were reporting on the impact of what we were fundraising. But in almost every single communication we sent out, we were making a push for support. And as we started to see that the numbers and the responses come in, it gives you a much larger sample size of what's working, what needs to change, and how to better tweak what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think what's interesting is, is this idea that you're not asking just to ask, but you're asking because there's real needs to be met. And I think there's sometimes a gap that we don't believe that, you know, in some ways it feels as fundraisers, like it's almost like our understanding of fundraising is very much reflected in the response that we're going to get from our our fundraising as well. And it's like, we're asking because we're being opportunistic or we're asking because of this. And I think what we've forget and I know I because I experienced this because we we moved from you know nine kind of strong appeals we had like hyper segmentation in our donor base um, at the organization I worked for but when we looked at it and said okay we want to present and we we phrased it differently we we didn't necessarily present it as an ask but we're still presenting an ask and an opportunity for someone to engage was we moved from like nine to like 15 a year that were very clear to like a specific segment and saw a huge increase. But first and foremost, before we could do that, is we had to realize that the work we were doing needed more funding and the work that we needed to do, we had aligned with the passions and the impact that our donors wanted to make. And it was our responsibility. That's such a powerful way to present that opportunity to them. If we see fundraising in that way, like, that's different. Then you don't, you're not asking again and again and again. You're presenting an opportunity for them to execute what they 
told you they wanted to do. And we miss that as fundraisers. You know, I think it's interesting. And I, I was told this uh, a few years ago. Um, and, you know, you, you always know it's going to either be really good or really bad when someone, uh, before they have make their point, they say, now this may offend you. So my ears always perk up when someone says it in development community. Um, but they said, if you can't convince yourself to give to the organization that you work for, you shouldn't be convincing anybody else. Um, and what I think is very powerful is that no matter what I believe, no matter if I think that it's, it's opportunistic or I think it's overwhelming, if the data shows that the need is there, then we have a job to do. Um, and what I've always said is that nobody is ever going to give to an organization or solve a problem like Thompson addresses because of me. I am not the therapist. I am not the expert. I am not the person in the trenches, right? That's, those people are some of the best people out there, and they're the ones doing the actual work. But the need that they bring back to us, I can connect the dots. I can build that bridge between the donor. And if I'm not actively encouraging that donor to cross that bridge, um, then it's a waste. And the way that we look at it is, we live in a community here in Charlotte that is extremely philanthropic. Uh, there's a genuine care for the needs of the community. There's just a lack of knowledge or, an, or a lack of accessibility to how to help. Um, and so we, we do the same thing. We address our asks as an opportunity to invest in both the current and the future of Charlotte. Um, and that Thompson is the landing or the springboard in order for them to do that. Uh, and when you kind of take that approach and back it up with real data, um, I think I've now said data about 10 times, but I, I tell you, we, we live our life by that. Um, your asks become so much more confident, and then you really start to build kind of that culture um, of, of investment fundraising. People are seeing not only the need, but the light at the end of, of the tunnel if they invest in the program. And now, Justin, this isn't your first rodeo in fundraising. You've been in fundraising for a bit. And so I want to make sure that we glean from those insights as well. And so uh, I think what I like to do is challenge you to kind of take the posture that you're stepping into a new organization right now as, a, as the head of development. Disregard the title. doesn't matter. But you're, you're in charge of fund development mm -hmm. for the organization. Mm -hmm. What are the three priorities you're focused on? Uh, so first and foremost, it's learning the, the current culture of the organization from the team there, not only development, but from whatever programs or parts of the organizations uh, that, are, that make up um, that, that, that company. Um, I think a lot of what I've seen is a lot of development directors immediately spring right into, um, you know, what's our next appeal? What's the next mailing? What's the next video we're making? Um, and I think that you are the the most outward facing individual in the organization outside of potentially the CEO. Um, you're meeting with so many constituents that if you don't know the culture of your own organization, um, you're not able to build a really good case statement. Um, the second thing would be is to learn the data of, of the, the donor base. Um, you know, I've, I've been a part of organizations that the development director did not see themselves as a data person. Um, that wasn't their quote unquote strength. Uh, and I think that that's a real danger when you're expected to lead a team um, that has some real significant goals to keep the organization either afloat or moving forward. Um, and the third would be to get to know uh, board of directors and the most influential donors. Um, and that may not be the donor that's given the most money. 
um, I was told early on, the first group you want to look at are the donors that have been giving the longest. Um, and, and why have they been doing that, no matter the level, um, but really what is their tie-in because they have become the story of your organization. Yeah, I love that. So I think you, you mentioned culture, understanding your own division, your organization. You talked about understanding the data and then really diving into the donors as well. And I think those are spot on. So thanks for thanks for going through that exercise with me, Justin. And, and I think the, the thing I want to add on, we don't have much time left and I wish we could talk for like an hour and a half. And I think many of our listeners would agree. Um, but in summary, right now, many people are dealing with the response of COVID, the crisis of COVID. Obviously, we're moving out of the response, but there's fluctuation as to whether we're moving back into like the crisis moments. But either way, we're kind of in this in-between mm-hmm. where I feel like there's a lot of uneasiness, there's a lot of unrest, there's a lot of uncertainty. And the challenges are like, how do we lead well in, in, in our organizations? How do we still fundraise? How do we stay uh, focused on the task? And so I wanted to get your thoughts on this. You obviously mentioned that you all increased asks and that was helpful, but how else are you thinking about this moment where it's not clear what the reality is we're within and there's a lot of uncertainty as to what's next or what, where the future goes or how long, um, how are you navigating that? And what advice would you have for our listeners as they do the same for their, for their organizations? Um, I mean, no, I, I truly believe that people that choose to be in the nonprofit sector um, have some of the biggest hearts and have the ability to make some of the most impact and change. Um, and so what we've done uh, is take a real kind of internal look at what it is that we feel like we do well and what it is that we're connected well to and start to offer that to the community. Um, one of the first things that we did in response um, was to create this kind of on-the-fly webinar series for our local constituents here in Charlotte called Pivot in the Panic. Um, we've had speakers come on that really the intent is just to talk with and through some of the current situations that people are going through um, and, t- and talk them through how to pivot where they were into where they should be to get through this crisis. Um, it has nothing to do with Thompson. Now, we've taken a lot out of those conversations and, and, and put them to good use at our organization. Um, but the idea was we have a responsibility as a part of the foundation of Charlotte. Um, and not just because we've been here for 130 years, but because we work with those that don't have access to some of the basic human needs. Um, where you know this organization is working on supporting a real problem. And so we had some connections, some people, some opportunities that could really help the greater community. I think that for every ask that we make, we also want to make sure that we're giving something back. That's, that's real investment, right? We can't just stand there with our hands out and not offer something. And every single person and organization has something to offer. Um, this goes back to kind of that figuring out your culture, knowing your people, knowing your teams. Um, and so we've really tried to do that from the start of this. Sometimes that's as simple um, as getting on a, on a microphone or getting in front of a camera and saying, we see you and we're in this with you too. We're scared too. We have no idea what the next six weeks will look like. But hey, here's something that we think could help um, with really no strings attached. 
Um, we live in, in such a technological era where you can make a webinar, you can make a video, you can get on social media, and the cost is remarkably little in terms of financial cost. Um, so I would say that's probably what has garnered us the most uh, respect throughout this process. Um, we also are, are very cognizant of listening to our donor base and our supporters. When enough is enough, it's, it's time to stop. Um, so we took a few weeks back in the end of May, beginning of June, to just acknowledge our supporters, to acknowledge our community, to say, okay, what you did was so phenomenal um, and was so not out of character, but so unexpected in a time of a global crisis that we can't do anything but thank you. Um, and that's a really powerful movement. We've The responses we've gotten from people to say, I, I, I really can't believe you had the time to thank us while there's so much swirling around, that's memorable. Um, so just, just always make sure that you are reinvesting in your communities, not just asking them. It's so good, Justin. I appreciate those reminders because I think they embody so much of what we're trying to promote through this podcast and through so many of the other formats where we talk about organizations and kind of this call to be responsive. And so many of the principles you just mentioned are key principles of responsive nonprofits. You know, they're listening well, they're, they're looking at data, they're connecting with their donors, they're adding value more than they're asking. And, and these things are so important as we build and look to sustain resilient nonprofits that are so essential to our communities. And I think we need courageous leaders and you hinted at that. And I'm thankful to know that we mm -hmm. do have organizations because we get to work with them on a daily basis and we get to talk to organizations like you uh, at Thompson and Justin is just your leadership as well. And I can hear it in kind of your recommendations. And so it's encouraging to know we have this, this path forward. The challenge is, is are we going to have the courageous leadership to really believe it and drive forward? And I think that's a call that we hope to elevate on this and not just elevate by words, but also show examples. So thanks for being a part of that, Justin. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. 